The views and opinions expressed in this program do not necessarily represent those of Natural Bridges Media or KSQD staff, volunteers, or underwriters. KSQD thanks Sustainable Systems Research Foundation for supporting sustainability now. SSRF provides education, research, and advocacy for regional environmental quality and sustainability-related problems and solutions. Information available at sustainablesystemsfoundation.org. Thank you, SSRF, for supporting Community Radio. K-Squid. Hello, K-Squid listeners. It's every other Sunday again, and you're listening to Sustainability Now, a bi-weekly K-Squid radio show focused on environment, sustainability, and social justice in the Monterey Bay region, California, and the world. I'm your host, Ronnie Lipschitz. We live in a consumer society. Rising consumption is good since it makes the economy grow. At the same time, we face a climate crisis. Rising consumption is bad since it makes carbon emissions grow. People across the global north believe we must reduce emissions, but they're reluctant to reduce their consumption. What can we do? Some advocate ecological modernization by making our goods and services greener. Others argue that only shrinking the economy, degrowth, will do the trick. Maybe both are more mythic than technologically or politically feasible. Can we square the circle, or maybe circle the square, and find a path to sustainability? My guest today on Sustainability Now is Dr. Jean Boucher, and we're going to talk about the promises and myths of sustainable consumption. Boucher is a senior research scientist and Macaulay Development Trust Fellow in Land Use and Societal Metabolism at the James Hutton Institute in Aberdeen, Scotland. His research focuses on stocks and flows of goods and materials through urban areas, as well as people's lives, especially in the pursuit of sustainability. Jean Boucher, welcome to Sustainability Now. Hi, Ronnie. It's nice to be here. Uh, let's begin with a little background. How would you describe yourself in disciplinary and interdisciplinary terms? You know, what kind of research have you done in the past, and what are you up to at the Hutton Institute? All right. Those are big questions. So I was originally trained as a mechanical engineer, and I, I did about um, 12 years as a professional engineer. I did... Um, machine design for a while and I went into new product development and and then I got a bit dismayed uh when I saw some extreme poverty and and I left that and I actually went to Catholic seminary said so then I studied philosophy for a year I was trying to understand the world um and then I did some um sort of like missionary type work at the US Mexico border in sort of these safe houses for uh, immigrants and I was running out of money because working for the poor, there's not a lot of money. I was, and then I became a, a sociologist. I decided I wanted to teach. I I wanted to get into the heads of white people and teach them about their privilege. And in midway midway through my PhD degree, I was in a, in a, inequalities um, and like social justice scholar, and um, I ended up getting into environmental sociology. 
and I was tracking people's attitudes about climate change and how it, it was affecting their lifestyles, how much they were driving, how much they were flying, things like that in accord and how that related to their concern about climate change. And um, from then I went from postdoc to postdoc for a few, I like had a different job every six years, different postdocs. And now at the Hutton, I'm doing something called um, societal metabolic analyses. So I've incorporated in a strange way, like my engineering uh, ability to account carbon at a sort of a emissions type of tracking and looking at different sectors and then also pu pulling in social dynamics like how many workers are in different sectors, how many what's what's the fuel usage in those sectors, what are the greenhouse gases, what are the what's the gross value added? And then just looking if we're going to make net zero by 2045, which some countries are trying to do. So it's kind of an accounting and a relational analysis of looking how maybe you could call them assets and deficits from the social world interacting with our environments how we extract things and then how we impact and emit things. And I mean, what would be the, just to address this, you know, metabolic urban met metabolism that you're doing the work on. I mean, how would then, you know, how would you then use that to uh, affect, I don't know, production and consumption? Well, what we um, say is that, we're trying to at least illustrate a relational sort of model, a relational analysis so that people can see it. So this is, this is so it took me a while to understand metabolism. At first I was thinking it was like efficiency, but what it really is, is how things are being distributed through, through a system. Like I can eat, I'll, I'll eat food. My body's going to break it down into proteins and minerals and vitamins. And then my brain's going to use probably more fats or my liver's going to use something else. So different so different sectors are using different intensities of energy. And um, so what we're trying to do is trying to look at that relationship and how it affects money coming in, how many workers, what's the how capital intensive of certain industries, and then trying to track these things and... Um, at least getting an accurate picture. Over right. here on this side of the Atlantic, we talk about joined up. I'm in, I'm in Scotland. We talk about joined up thinking for joined up decision makers. And joined up means really doing the interdisciplinary work. Mm -hmm. And in the U.S., we might call it comprehensive or something like that. But it sort of misses sort of this joined up thinking of what are the trade-offs when we do X, Y, and Z on the environment versus in biodiversity. And then what are the jobs, that type of thing? Yeah, I think the term we're trying to use is systems analysis, but it's not done really very systemically, I think. You know, in reading your, your stuff and, and talking to you, you know, I would say you're a student of human and social behavior. What people believe and whether they, not, or not they actually practice what they believe. Uh, it, I mean, is that a close enough description? Yeah, that was that was my original training. I I do think of myself as something of a behavioralist. Well, yeah, again, not a quanti quantitative behavioralist, I think, right? But a little maybe, bit, yes, a little bit, yeah. How, what my question was: How does the the metabolic work link to individual behaviors? I mean, we we'll get we'll get beyond that a little bit later, but. 
um, there seems to be a kind of a, a problem, at least the way that you see it practiced, right? Which is that there's no, the transmission system from, you know, the kind of macro understanding of what's going on to the micro behaviors is kind of wonky. I agree with you. And, and thanks for getting back to the question because I didn't feel like I answered it. This stuff is really intertwined. If we're going to sort of, quote unquote, save the planet, if we're going to do this system change, there's going to have to also be individual change. We're going to need bottom up, top down, middle, middle <laughs> initiatives and, and that type of thing. So for instance, the uh, let's talk about electric cars, right? So I don't know that people are specifically saying these things, but there sort of seems to be this idea we're just going to switch to electric cars and then, you know, go on like how things were. You know what I mean? Right, right. So and that sort of cushions in some ways human behavior. And we, we, okay, I can still, you know, drive around with, you know, 2,000 pounds of steel wherever I want to go. And I can still live in the suburbs and not have to get on a bus, uh, you know, you know, these these types of things. And I end it. It um, it lends itself really nicely to technological fixes and corporations can still be corporations and they can keep doing what they've always done, too. And so there's not actually a lot of change happening there. Um, but there is in the supply chain. We know that there is a bunch of change. Right who's doing what and, and we're going to are we going to be keeping fossil fuels in the ground are we now doing more lithium mining and are there more human rights abuses you know it's a whole nother set of questions some people call it problem shifting rather than actually problem solving mm. well what i really wanted to talk about was sustainable consumption because i think that's at a different level of complexity i mean it's not that it's not a complex issue but it's not like metabolism. And so what what does that mean from your perspective? And what are the two or three main arguments about how to get there? Or is it possible to get there? Yeah, um, I guess we can start with the definition. So I, I guess it, it it is like what it sounds. It, it's a it's a it's an idealistic. It's an it's an idea. It's a term. It's an idea. And and I think in some ways is all right, let's try to move to this place. Let's try to move to this place where all these individuals consume in a way that is can be long lasting, can 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 continue into the to the future, can be sustainable in in short. And I don't exactly know what that looks like. And uh, but I think it's good to have the word, and it's good to have. It's like when human rights. You know, we we have the language for human rights. We're still challenged to to implement all that stuff, right? So I think you know, there's an idea called sustainable consumption. People are writing about it. People are trying to achieve it. People are working on it. Uh, it's probably a small group of scholars, and um, you know, I don't exactly again, I don't exactly know what that will look like. I mean, this the 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 maybe the hope is right that sustainable consumption is is a set of of practices using various kinds of products that doesn't increase overall greenhouse gas emissions and perhaps conserves materials right materials consumption i mean it's a whole set of assumptions and presumptions and so you you interviewed you know you went out and you interviewed people 
Um, and what did they understand that as, you know, the, the meaning of the term? Well, what I ended up doing when I did my dissertation was I had a quantitative data set that had a representative of the United States. I had the whole scale of different incomes. I had different geographic locations. Mm -hmm. I had different beliefs. I had uh, different political beliefs. I had, you know, people who were alarmed about climate change, people who didn't believe in it. And what I ended up finding was that people's values, if you're alarmed about climate change, it has some effect on you reducing your carbon footprint. But what really drove my model was people's income. So the more money people had, the more they flew, the more they drove, the more cars they had. And it was a bit dismaying, actually. I, I, I think I was a bit shocked from my findings, even though it was part of my hypothesis. Because I was originally a social class scholar, and I know that class, I called it the accoutrement of class. When you're in a particular class, you want to have those things that symbolically look like you're in that class. Do you know what I mean? And you want to have these practices that sort of symbolize and perform the, the, the class position. And... Um, so one of the people I interviewed actually says we consume to our income. And uh, and 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 what I found is that it's not so much people's values, but it's their means. If I have so much money, I have this temptation to right. do things with it. And right. um, so I started talking about we need to reduce people's income. You could reduce, you could have a carbon tax and try to reduce carbon. You could also reduce people's income. And you know, I don't, you know, that's not going to fly too well in the United States. Um, but well, I think it would be effective. Well, I mean, there is a growing debate here about the divide between the the very wealthy, right, and everyone else. Um, and you know, the thing is, though, that that the the very wealthy, although they they consume a lot, there are limits to to what they can, can practical limits to what they can consume, um, right? And it's the mm -hmm. It's the, I don't know, I don't know where the, the level would start, but I mean, in California, you'd say, you know, those with incomes of, of between 100000 and $500,000, you know, who have discretionary income to, to, to spend and to try and live up to their means. Um, and globally, that seems to me to be the, do you get what I'm saying is that, you know, there are 2 billion people in the world who are responsible for the majority of the con of consumption around the world. I, I I agree with everything you're saying and your and what you're suggesting. And I also have some other findings. I didn't publish them. And different people have been doing some different things about inequality. But this whole movement toward environmental justice and climate justice really needs to be, in some ways, um, critiqued and problematized. Because if you start having, if you if you're bringing up all the poor to a particular level and and trying to bring down the the affluent, it depends where you where you're going to end up there, right? Because oh, you sure. could actually consume a lot less with high levels of inequality, right? Because like you said, the rich can only consume so much, and if they're such a small class, and if you have all these poor people, well, they're just not going to be. So there, there there needs to be questions and debates about you know. How much inequality, and what do you mean by equality? And there's 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 a lot going on there that it, it's not as simple as as the discussion generally generally is. Yeah, I I mean I get that I get that, 
Right. But but if you want to uh, reduce people's incomes, you're right. You're now talking about highly progressive tax rates, which, of course, in the United States, we no longer have and um, which are enormously resented. I mean, politically, it's a landmine or a third rail, as some people like to call it. So it's it's just difficult to see how how that might be accomplished. And I'm not putting, I'm not asking you for the solution because, you know, lots of people are thinking about it. Well, I, and I, and I agree with you and I don't know that reducing people's income is the best approach, right? Because like you said, the regressive regressivity of that. Um, but I think it's good to have that in the conversation to say, what are we trying to do? I know Sweden, when Sweden implemented their carbon tax, they actually reduced their income tax because they were they were they called it a double dividend oh we could we could uh, make money we can bring in revenue by yeah, taxing yeah. carbon and then we could give people money who who pe- who need it and then meanwhile we're also you know trying to reduce emissions at the same time you know that's that's part of the the, the theory the carbon tax is basically a consumption tax it's not a an income tax and so um right and i mean that makes a difference although Again, you know, people resent it mightily. You're listening to Sustainability Now. My guest today is Jean Boucher, who is a research scientist at the James Hutton Institute in Aberdeen, Scotland. And we're talking about the ins and outs of sustainable consumption, what it means, uh, at what level, you know, would, would it take place at the individual or at the social, you know, aggregate levels. Most prescriptions for sustainable consumption focus on individual behavioral change. Why is that? Um, Corporations like it, and it seems to be easy, like, oh, I can change myself. But if I have to organize and try to change the government or try to, you know, uh, lobby my policy, you know, makers or try to uh, organize with people and become part of a social movement. That's that's more tedious. And I, and I maybe not even have that skill set. Whereas, you know, maybe I could figure out how to eat more uh, vegetables or I could figure out, you know, how to take the bus or it comes down to means and simplicity. I think. It also seems to me it comes to down to agency, right? People feel powerless and here's something they're told, you know, this is something that they can do. It doesn't, as, as you say, it doesn't require mobilization. It doesn't require any kind of, of collaborative effort. We are, we're quite challenged. Um, I have a friend that works in, um, he does research in what's called decolonizing the imaginary. Mm. And we got to think that, you know, we've been pummeled by, by consumer psychologists for, for 80 years plus, you know, and our our ability to to think in a simple way, where you know, what a, what a good life looks like, what the things we think we're supposed to have, all these kinds of things are so embedded into us. It's it's quite challenging to change. And then, like you said, for instance, if I talk to people about um, my trying to reduce my own carbon footprint. And generally they'll say, well, I recycle and I do this and I do that. And it's a sort of the standard fare of things that sort of get handed around and passed out. Right. It's not very creative. It's like the same thing, everything, everybody else is because we're, 
You're right. It's agency, but also again, back to the system. The system's not allowing a whole a low, whole lot for us to do. Well, it's not. It's not easy. It's yes. not easy being green, as Kermit the Frog once said. Um, <laughs> and and especially, I mean, if you take life cycle issues right into account, you if you have solar on your roof there's nothing about how this is the stuff was produced or where it will go when its lifetime is ended. Right. It's a very sort of time limited action. And yes. I know that in California people recycle, but then there are all of these questions about where does this stuff end up or is it being recycled or is it being landfilled? And, and what is actually the, the long-term consequence of just throwing stuff in your bin? I think there's a lot of conversations that need to get um, broadened out into uh, and include a, a larger uh, set of publics. I, I was at a battery, uh, this cutting edge battery um, manufacturer here in the United Kingdom, and uh, and there were you know there was all this high end. It's very technological. There's a lot of competition in this field for new batteries. And I said, do you have time to think about the recyclability of your materials? He goes, no, no, we don't have time for that right now. We'll have to deal with that later. So it's this is it's it's quite unfortunate, but that's sort of the reality of this this competitive um, space. Yeah, and focused on focused on short term profitability, yes. right? And I mean, yeah. That's, let's talk. Let's talk here about back. Go back to the sort of the social behavior part of this, not behavioralism, but the social behavior. One contradiction in the idea of sustainable consumption among many is that any new practice that strays far from the logic of convention and is likely to encounter social criticism and resistance in the market takes a long time to become widespread. Yes. You know, and my example is social smoking. In the 1950s, at least in the United States, social smoking was a norm. You went to a party, you got together, everybody smoked. Today, it isn't, although, of course, there are parties here where people smoke, but by and large, you know, it's something that you don't do in polite company. You have to ask permission. Yeah. And right. And the question is, how did that happen? It's, a, it's 40 or 50 years. And what what were the forces that brought that change about? And I think about that in terms of consumption practices, changing consumption practices, and I don't know if you've if you've given any thought to this or paid any attention. I mean, have you seen in your research, do you see anything like that happening, uh, you know, in the area of consumption, of sustainable consumption? Well, there's three, there's probably three sort of go-to sort of um, cultural changes that I, that I sort of do. One of them is smoking, like you said. The other is, is seatbelts, seatbelts mm -hmm. in cars. And then, then the more recent one is COVID um, right now. And generally you have this concrete um, threat or you, you either have the concrete threat or you have, for instance, seatbelts and smoking. You had the medical community just coming on and on and on. And I think you remember when we were children, there were those those crash commercials that we used to see. And then there was with and without the seatbelts. And there was a time where cars didn't even come with seatbelts themselves. So you had to get the, the producer to put the seatbelts in. Right. And then you had to get the public to understand. And then now, I mean, you you get a ticket. 
if you don't. So you have this enforcement, you have to have it. So there's a number of components that need to kick in besides just the knowledge of, oh, not having a seatbelt's not really good for my health, right? Um, and it's the same thing, you know, with smoking. It's more than just having the knowledge that it's bad for me or 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 what, what happened with COVID. Um, I think thinking about climate change, we need a COVID-type response from governments. Uh, you know, we saw that governments could swoop and do, and do, and, and do things. And people generally listened. Some of the media concentrated on on protests and the pushback, but most people listened to the government during COVID and did what the government prescribed with this idea of this concrete threat, right? So Anthony Giddens, sociologist, talked about, um, he called it the Giddens paradox. He named it after himself, which was people aren't going to do anything about climate change, change until it's too late. Uh, you know, it's a bit dark, but uh, it, it seems to be in some ways human nature to, you know, do I really have to do this now? Oh, okay. Uh, yeah. So we need a bunch of different components to come in to, to, to get people to, because cultural inertia is, is quite strong. And to exactly what you already said, when you asked the question to start shifting this stuff is going to take a few different components and the carrots and the sticks and all that stuff. But it's going to take, it's going to take decades. I mean, by that logic, and of course, is that soon enough? I mean, that comes back to this question of, can this kind of slow and paced social change happen quickly enough to make a difference? Yeah, and uh, it's, uh, I, I used to call myself an eco-fascist, and people used to say, no, I don't think you want to say that. <laughs> and so then I called myself an eco-authoritarian. And even then, so the whole idea of authoritarian government and, and stuff like that is a bit anathema to us. And I think you 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 mentioned, like, when I, I one of the things when I finished my dissertation was I feel like I ran into the enlightenment, which, which, which was, you know, individual yeah. freedom, freedom from tyranny, all this kind of stuff. And for me to be start proposing this, this strong arm of government to force people to be sustainable, uh, I, I haven't I haven't figured out how to get over that hurdle. Yeah, I actually wanted to talk some more about that. You're listening to Sustainability Now. I'm Ronnie Lipschitz, and my guest today is Jean Boucher who is a fellow at the James Hutton Institute in Aberdeen, Scotland, where he works on land use and societal metabolism and sustainable consumption and, and things like that. And we were just getting on to the, uh, to the Enlightenment, and in particular, its notion of individual freedom. Uh, I mean, it's interesting that certainly in the United States, the, the, the conservative right tends to regard, once again, the Enlightenment as the, the greatest disaster that ever befell humanity. Although, I mean, they subscribe to this idea of individual freedom, right? But it's a very sort of particular individual freedom and, and not one that gives liberty to the individual to decide what she or he wants to do. Um, mm. And, and um, you wrote in one of your publications, has humanity then in myth or reality directly or indirectly finally achieved a constituent component of the Enlightenment, which I thought was a, an interesting and very provocative statement. Can you explain what that constituent component 
is. Well, from my so I'm I, I'm not a deep you know middle you know enlightenment philosopher or anything like and, that. And that's good because then we would go <laughs> off down rabbit trails and never and never emerge again. Thanks, Ronnie. <laughs> uh, but it was it for me. It was it was the idea of individual freedom and freedom from tyranny and 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 tyrannous governments and dictators and and that these strong arms and 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 human rights, right? And and that was the sense I was getting because if I'm thinking in order, because income, I saw income, high income as an enabler and low income as a constraint. Okay. I think probably most of us could remember when we were poor college students and trying to get by and we figured out how to get by with this minimal, uh, well, most people, I think nowadays it might be a bit different, uh, could figure that out. And that was what I that was what I was seeing. People on their own accord, people of their own agency and freedom, aren't choosing to be "quote unquote" sustainable, whatever that means, um, or to reduce their environmental impact. And so we need some sort of external hand to constrain and say, "You can't do this. You can't do that. You can't do this. Otherwise, figure it out. You have the, you have these other freedoms. You just don't have these freedoms." Well, think about another way to look at this, okay? And that is that. You know, people talk about the sort of the balance between the indiv- individual freedom and and so- social well-being. Let's put it that mm, way. I don't want to use yeah. the term security, right? And and COVID was a great example of that, right? Is that for, in the for the for the, uh, the the social benefit, people weren't required absolutely to go out and get vaccinations, but you know, there's a lot of pressure to do that. And of course, it was overturned, and you know, in the courts in some cases, right? When the state when the state said, well, this will be good for all of us. And um, the, the, the flip side of that is, is, of course, that, you know, individuals may not benefit or have an interest in engaging in that kind of social behavior. Your argument then is that, that you know, this com- constituent of the Enlightenment, the individual freedom, works against any kind of social conscience. I don't know what to call it exactly. I mean, we do have social conscience, right? Most of us do. But by the same token, when it's something that requires us to do to change what we're doing on a, on a mass, on a, on a larger scale level, we may resist. And it's again, it's sort of the resistance to vaccination. Yeah, I mean, I would I would venture to guess that the United States, if we're going to talk about the United States, is probably the most individualistic country that ever existed. Yeah, maybe yeah. I shouldn't maybe I shouldn't say it that way, but I, I would I would I would I would think in my my um, experience in other countries has been there is a bit more communal. They're, they're a bit more communal, and there was an old term that used to get thrown around called the common good. Not, not that I'm saying I'm hearing that a lot, but I think. You know, these are these are sorts of things, and I think capitalistic thinking has just you know. I mean, I was I was I was actually raised Catholic, which is a bit more communal, and then, but I was going to school and learned about capitalism, and I needed to you know, join the ranks and and do status climbing and try to achieve and all these kinds of things. It wasn't I wasn't so much thinking about helping other folks. So there is this idea called green competition, right? So if you see me with an electric car or we actually we actually have evidence that if I get a solar panel on my house, that the the chances of my neighbors getting solar panels is go, is going to increase, and so there's this visibility effect, and there can be this thing called green competition where we all start you know 
um, even some of the people I interviewed, they, there's sort of this frugality. The, these two sisters, they were very frugal and they used to compare how cheap clothing they could buy. Look at this great dress I got for only, you know, five bucks, <laughs> that type of thing. But I mean, uh, so there's that dynamic, the way culture can morph and change into a better direction. But again, we're we're being pummeled by all these different ideas of consumer marketers of of the next best thing or the next phone or the I mean, there's there's always some new thing that we're supposed to have, and there is actually a social movement right now. Just it's kind of going in the wrong direction, right? When you say social movement, what do you what do you? Have I mean, just the way there, there's this thing in sociology we call drift, like the way people consume. When do you think you should have a car in your life? When do you think you should have your own home with your own yard? When do you want to move to the suburbs? I mean, in the U.S. mind or the middle class, the, the view of the American dream and the middle class, right. I mean, there's still a lot. I mean, that's a, that's, a, that's a bit of a myth, but there's also a concrete reality that comes with that myth, you know? Yeah. You know, going, going back to this, I mean, peer pressure, it's not exactly peer pressure, it's peer competition, right? keeping up with the Joneses, right? If they've got a solar panel, if they've got a Cadillac, right? I used to, in my classes, I used to say, you know, the the ideal car is a 1968 Volvo. It's not big, you know, it's fairly fuel efficient. It's not difficult to repair, although I don't know if it was difficult to repair or not. But everybody around here is buying Teslas, you know? Mm -hmm. And, And I think it's as much, you know, status, it is as, as as it is you know any anything else and and it being a high end a fairly high end vehicle you know its impact on sustainability is is kind of questionable yes it is when you talk this way when you what you mentioned the volvo i spent some time in cuba and you know there's all kinds of uh, 1950s cars still running and and in the us we've thrown away how many iterations of cars and I and I know people who you know every every four years they're getting they're trading in their Mercedes for another one you know, uh, and and it and kind of in those those elite circles I mean that's almost to be expected right I'm always mm-hmm. always have the latest greatest car, and I'm always kept up to date I I I don't want to have an old car I don't want it to break down on me someplace in a weird place. But if it's if it's fairly simple to repair, it's probably easier to find someone who can repair it. Yes. Right? Than if it's yes. if it's very you know complicated and full of electronics and and requires a PhD. Ex- in, yes. Uh, you know. Yeah. In electrical yeah. engineering to fix. Yeah. So I, w- I want to get back to the the individualism and and the enlightenment. You you wrote in the piece that I cited earlier. The human quest for freedom from tyranny has become something of a power to pollute and degrade one's environmental surroundings. And then you wrote, strong policies of constraint are necessary to corral a hegemonic consumption culture that has for many centuries prized and sought its freedoms from constraint, right? And this gets back to however you describe yourself. I imagine you've thought about what those policies of constraint might look like you know, and maybe you can say some more about what you might imagine that to uh, to be. Yes, I have given uh, some of this some thought. And then there's the actual creative ideas, and then there what would actually get any traction, right? So well, we needed cars to create suburbs, and now we have suburbs, and now we get it. We we need cars because of the suburbs, 
this is this is going to be a very tenacious thing to try to turn around. Um, I have colleagues working in what they call compact cities, right? Where you get into a flat, you're sharing resources with somebody else. Maybe you even have a flatmate. I mean, for some people, this might be anathema. Who want, you know, I want my own house. I want my own yard. I want my own pool. I want my own. So I think we really need to up the ante on what it costs for people to have these large homes out in the suburbs. How much land do you have? I mean, it's it's. It, it, I, I don't know any other way to but to have this big stick in that kind of space. I mean, you've you've probably spent some time in Europe, and it's it's probably no accident that they're not as have as much sprawl as U.S. cities, right? And there's more concentrated people. It's an older place. There's been less resources. Granted, a lot of resources in Europe come from other countries, right? Um, but it's it's a bit more culturally embedded. Uh, as soon as I land in the U.S., I just start noticing all kinds of things are just bigger. Well, uh, you know, I mean, cities in the Euro- in Europe grew up around walking, right? yes. And I mean, and I mean, you know, and then so changing the the architecture takes work. I mean, Paris, of course, is is uh, an example of changing the architecture, right? The Hausman's wide boulevards, whereas in the United States, once you get west of the Appalachians, walking was really not the uh, the reason. I mean, cities were not organized around walking. And of course, Los Angeles then is the epitome of, of the opposite of that. Yeah. And I, and I would, I would, you know, I'm not sure if it's so bold to say we didn't have to, we didn't have to do that. No, but we had the space, right? I mean, yeah, we had the space, we had the means. There's, there was some people writing about uh, that the people who landed in the U S suddenly they saw all this land almost free for the grabbing right but you had to sort of get some other people off of it and then there there was uh, this idea of limitless thinking i didn't need to track what i threw away or how much i used because it was just a limitless amount it seemed like and i think in some ways that still is stuck in the in the u.s brain um somehow and probably connected to the idea of freedom well, certainly, it's certainly, you know, in the sense that you can move anywhere you want to. But I mean, historically, farmers, they farmed, they degraded the land, they moved west to a new parcel. You know, sure, so, yeah. so New England is now, you know, a site of old growth forests from because of abandoned farms. Mm-hmm, yeah. Um, and yeah, I, I mean, I imagine that particular sort of mindset gets transmitted down through the generations and manifests itself in infrastructure and, and architecture. Mm. So so this question of, you know, the strong policies of constraint seems to me really difficult to to break into. There was another thing that I wanted to that that occurred to me, and that is a the argument that cities are more sustainable. And I and I, I have seen recently recent arguments or recent evidence that what we call transit-oriented development in the United States, right, which is mm-hmm. basically developing around transit nodes rather than pushing out of the city, is actually not necessarily better in terms of consumption because the people who can afford to live in these new developments have a fair amount of money. Yes. They can continue to travel. They can continue to drive. They can continue to consume you get um, gentrification of a sort, which doesn't have the really the desired impact. Mm-hmm. 
And I mean, that seems to me to be to go back to the metabolism question as well. Yes, I think it's a I think it's still an active question. And I think there's different levels. Let's pretend that we somehow want to get everyone back to the land. Uh, I mean, first of all, you know, I don't I don't know that that could even happen. Uh, and then there's arguments about what's going to be the impact of that. I mean, we know 100 years ago, what, 85% of U.S. citizens were farmers. Um, yeah. So it, it wasn't actually all that long ago. And there was a different type of economy, right? If you're if you're living off the land, if you could have some degree of susten sustenance from the land, I mean, you weren't translating that into dollars, uh, right? You you could survive from that, but it shouldn't wouldn't show up in the books. Um, and and a lot of that happens all over the world. Um, so I think it, it I think it has to do with degree in some ways that if we're going to have these very intensive urban places, how do we lower that impact is it about more compact cities maybe it is more walkable cities more type city or you know what's the next level and and and, and to your point i mean there's what's 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 the idea and then what's doable and then is it realistic i mean all these all these kinds of things are are it's it's humanity is in a very tenacious and difficult place right now yeah, I mean, I'm I've been thinking of the last few days that maybe we're a failed evolutionary experiment, but uh, so to speak. Um, yeah, you sound like but, one of my friends, and I'm I'm not too far from there. Yeah, you're listening to Sustainability Now. I'm Ronnie Lipschitz. My guest today is Dr. Jean Boucher, who works on urban metabolism, sustainable consumption, and a number of related issues, and is now based in Aberdeen, Scotland. In 2019, you and a colleague published an edited volume, Sustainable Consumption, Promise or Myth, Case Studies from the Field. Uh, can you summarize the findings of, of the case studies of, of any of them? Um, and were there any promising avenues of action revealed in those case studies? Sure. I'm not sure I could summarize it. It, it was from 2019. I, I was recently... <laughs> I watched an interview of a studio musician and then he was just saying, you could imagine I don't practice my old riffs. <laughs> so in, in some ways, maybe that's an sure. excuse for not doing my homework. But, uh, but no, so what happened was there was a su sustainable consumption conference and I was asked if I could pull together some of the papers and, and, and maybe get this book out. And uh, after two and a half years managed to pull it off. And so what we had was this sort of eclectic set of examples of, carrot mobs that would go and, and consume particular types of uh, items or or green things from certain certain stores or excuse there me what's was, a carrot mob you'll have it, to it was something to do about that. carrots and sticks and you get a group of people to go and support a particular store who was doing these very positive things so you would get a group of people trying to sort of um not well, artificially move, move the market right exactly yes yeah. And then there was also someone who was doing sort of work in old office furniture and finding ways that other people could use old office furniture. There was work on automobility. I wrote a piece on, you know, the vis visibility of cars, of electric cars, like, like I sort of think something simplistically like a lightning bolt. If every single electric car had a little big lightning bolt on the side of it, then the thought that people would be seeing that there's, Oh, there's more electric cars around here. Then maybe it'd be, it would tempt people as it is. Like, I don't know if something's electric car until I can't hear it. 
I go, oh, I can't hear that car, but it's right there. Oh, it must be electric, right? I have to interject here that sure. more recent models make sounds so that you can hear them, especially when they're backing up. And it sounds like nothing so much as like a chorus of angels singing out. It's it's a very strange sound. I don't know if you've heard it. I haven't. Uh, well, uh, I've I've noticed it in a few, you know, a few cars. Anyway, go on. Yeah, and so and then there was some stuff on compact cities and then flying and stuff. And um and wh when I wrote in the epilogue, I wrote it, it was it sort of ended up being sort of like I call it cherry pickings from the field and and cherry pickings can sometimes be derogatory, but what I also found was where these were possibilities. These were these were studies of areas where people were being creative and trying to do sustainable things that were different, right? Mm -hmm. And whether all those things are sustainable in themselves, are there enough of these sort of cherry-picked sort of different types of things? Probably not. But people are, there are people out there wanting to do things, wanting to get involved, wanting to take risks, wanting to make change. I'm just not sure there's enough of them, right? So if you just concentrate on that, then you can get a pretty, um, you can get a rich story on the way people are trying to do things. But I think the other story's stronger. In these case studies, did the um, the the writers of the the papers make any note about the income levels of the people who were, you know, engaging in these practices? I think some did and some didn't. I mean, my my study was cross incomes, so I was looking at different incomes anyway. And um, I I don't remember that, but mm. I think you know there were a couple like back to the land communities and stuff like that. And and probably to your point, there is probably sort of this middle class, educated, you know, white sort of population that's you know has the time and and able to take the risks to do these kinds of different types of um, cultural, cultural things. Yeah. Well, okay. I mean, I'd, I'd like to get somewhat more edgy. I mean, I'm not sure if this is edgy. Do, do you see, or have you identified any sustainable trajectory to the future that does not require low, lower levels of consumption by the world's, you know, well off? Can you imagine something like that? Have no. you? No. Well, that's no. a quick answer. No, no, it's, it's I've just, I've not, I've not seen a whole lot of positive things come from high income. I mean, it affects our democracies and that's not even, even my subject matter. Yeah. And um, so, yeah, no. And, and it's fairly well established that even though higher income people have more energy efficient items, they have more of those energy efficient items. They've and they also fly more, and they have a bigger chunk of land, and right. they yeah. have more than one home and more than one car. So, it, 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 the, the, and, and the absolute doesn't doesn't make up for the relative difference. Mm -hmm. So degrowth is probably out of the question. Degrowth might be, but it's for me. It's like the only game in town that's sort of pushing the 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 the, the edge. Do you know what I mean? It's it's questioning growth. It's questioning how we live. It's asking us to live more convivially and to think more if we think about you know more socially, more environmentally, to downshift, to live a slower life. Yeah. But what did you mean? No, I you know, I've 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 done a lot of, you know, I've done reading about about degrowth and it's difficult to see 
how you could do that in a world economy premised on growth and rising, you know, gross domestic products. I mean, the 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 profit incentive, right, continues to to drive our our yeah, economy yeah. and our way of thinking. We need a different incentive system, and we don't have it. We we've been pushing for forty years to get rid of GDP. We're still having a hard time doing it. There's there's uh, countries there's four countries that have uh, committed to well-being economies. They're still defining what well-being means. You know, we're going to measure you know success by people's well-being, not by GDP. Uh, so there's there's good ideas. There's some movement. It's it's just very slow, and it's it's there's not a lot. Okay, is there anything that we might not have covered that you'd like to bring up? I suppose. Um, the question of hope generally bothers me, and I so, and I suppose the urgency, and um, I guess maybe the radical nature of um, social activism. I I I I feel like we're going to have to get more. You mentioned the word edgy. I think our activism is going to have to get more edgy. I've done some activism, and it's it's you actually need to do something edgy to even get into the news, to even get noticed. Um, unfortunately. Can you give us some examples? Well, you got to throw orange paint at a building or you got to, you know, block something and get arrested or you got to, you know, and even then sometimes the media doesn't cover you. Well, even if the media covers you, it, it passes. I mean, it, you know, eventually it, it falls out of the news. So, um, yes. Right. Yes. And, and, and people get annoyed if they're, if the highway gets blocked, right. You might not be generating support yeah and these things are quite hard to measure impact is very difficult to measure like people might like to think you know greta has made you know some sort of impact she's got more young people involved she probably has but you know, how would you, how do you exactly measure the impact of a greta on uh, european policy very very difficult but i think yeah. it all becomes part of the puzzle right we know at one point women couldn't vote, and we know now that they can vote. And we know there was a lot of long, long, hard push for that in many different types of ways. And a lot of people suffered and sacrificed to push for that, right? So as a sociologist, I'm thinking like everything and anything you can do to try to move the needle, like let's 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 do it. Mm. All right. I guess on that optimistic note, that note of hope, we're <laughs> we're we're done here, right? <laughs> Yeah, thanks, Ronnie. Uh, yeah, thanks very much, Jean Boucher, for being my guest on Sustainability Now. You're welcome. You've been listening to an interview with Dr. Jean Boucher of the Hutton Institute in Aberdeen, Scotland, where he studies urban metabolism, consumer behavior, and other climate-related issues. If you'd like to listen to previous shows, you can find them at ksquid.org slash sustainabilitynow and Spotify, Google Podcasts, and Pocket Casts, among other podcast sites. So thanks for listening, and thanks to all the staff and volunteers who make K-Squid your community radio station, and keep it going. And so, until next, every other Sunday, sustainability now.